Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry, and I'm joined by my wife, Kristen. Hello. This season, we are focusing on reimagining prayer. What does prayer look like in terms of Jesus's invitation to abide in him and his directive to live out our spiritual authority in bringing about the Great Commission? For this episode, we have the privilege of Dr. Jude Terzma Watson joining us. Jude Tirsma Watson and her husband, John, lived for 30 years in an immigrant neighborhood in central Los Angeles with Interchange Novo, a Christian order among the poor, before relocating to Pomona. The Interchange team in L.A. seeks to see God transform and raise up new leaders for an urban generation. Jude's current role is in staff formation and care with Interchange Globally. She's also an associate professor of urban mission at Fuller Seminary with a special interest in the integration of spirituality in urban contexts. You can find her videos on Fuller Studio. Welcome, Jude. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes. So um, we we typically start off our this season with some funny stories about prayer. You had something funny that happened oh thirty seconds before you logged in. So I want to want to give you the floor, Jude. Let us tell it. Tell our listeners what happened. Well, I I I got the questions and, and the idea of a funny story, and so all week I've been trying to think of a funny prayer story. And I couldn't really think of one. And that was sad to me because I actually think God has a sense of humor. I think prayer should be joyful and playful and, and have fun. But I couldn't think of one. <laughs> I did think, though, however, if I think more about joy than funny, I have an eight-year-old grandson from tied to our ministry in L.A. And he's a joy. He's a delight. And if I think about uh, walking with him prayerfully in the park, he's always doing funny things. I think kids bring so much laughter and joy. And I, it seems to me that that's part of that becoming like a child when we hang like hang out with the kids. We remember what it is to be childlike in our faith. So that's one thing I would say. But then what happened is just a few minutes before I was going to sign in, I was multitasking, which I actually try not to do because I'm all about attentiveness. I totally lost my attentiveness and I was trying to get coffee ready to go to the park and I was um, doing, anyway, I was doing too many things and we had some homemade salsa, someone's aunt made for us and it flew somehow all over me in the kitchen. (laughs) And one has a couple of responses uh, and laughter is one of them. And I (laughs) let me practice the presence of God while I, um, Clean up the salsa. Oh. <laughs> and clean up the laundry and throw my clothes in the laundry. And what does it mean for God to be with me in this immediate moment? And thankfully, my husband was home and helped me clean up the floor. His name's John. So, so that was um, so. It's so. There's this way that of bringing God into the very immediate of our lives, and that I think so much of what prayer and attentive prayer is about. Yeah, so uh, Brother Andrew learned peeling potatoes, and you're learning spilling and cleaning up salsa, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's in the everyday, right? I'm going for me. (laughs) Well, let's jump into your story. Tell us a little bit about, you know, where you came from, your journey to Christ, and a little bit about maybe your prayer journey as well. Yeah, well, I'll start with the the journey 
before I was consciously praying. I was born in, um, I always joke at that I was born in a barn, you know, that that saying, because people go, were you yeah. born in a barn? I said, well, actually, I was born in a barn. So <laughs> up in the north of the Netherlands, there's a province called Friesland, and the houses, the barns and the houses are like one big unit. And so the house is in the front and the cows are in the back. So I was born in the front. And it was, my parents lived with my grandparents mm-hmm. in the 50s, but um, after World War II, there was a housing shortage. So we lived there for the five years before we immigrated to the United States. So I have a lot of memories of that time. I should share one memory because it's probably one of the most foundational memories of my life. So they have pretty fierce storms there, thundering, lightning. It's not Southern California by any means. And I love being outside with my father. I like I just love being out, even in the cold. So I remember I must well, we immigrated when I was almost five. So that must have been the winter. The Sabbath was probably four. And I'm on a hay wagon and my dad and the other men are all working in the field and there's a storm coming. So they're all bringing in the hay so that it doesn't get wet, right? So they're working really hard and I'm on the wagon. Now not every father would take their little girl out on the wagon, but that's just how we rolled, and I loved it. And there was a huge clap of thunder, and it was really close. Like, well, I guess to a little girl, it would have sounded really close anyway. And in that moment, I had this moment of terror, of fear. And before it could even register, my father swooped me up in his arms and held me. And that, for me, has always been like my go-to story. That's, that's who God is in my life. And I was very fortunate to have a father who, not everyone has that, but I was fortunate to have a father that swooped me up in that moment of fear when I was a little girl. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So we immigrated, and immigration is very hard. We left behind my, grand, my grandparents who lived with, my other grandparents. You know, we didn't speak the language. You start over. There's many things that uh, are a struggle, even though we probably had more advantages because we were illegal immigrants. So we have more privilege and advantage advantages than some people would. We went, I went to three first grades and then to a second grade and then a couple fourth grades. So we moved a lot until we finally settled on a dairy farm in the San Joaquin Valley. Mm. And the next thing that I, the big, the next big moment that I would want to share that I would grow up in the Christian Reformed Church, and it, it was a very solid foundation kind of upbringing. But I don't remember very much about how I related to God, actually, mm-hmm. except for later on, I remember that story. But when I was, the summer after my freshman year, I was pretty depressed. I was really struggling with my identity, and I didn't feel like an American. I had this cultural identity issues, and, you know, being 13 and 14 is being 13 and 14 anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the same in every part of the country. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you have the added thing. So, mm. um, so I went to this camp in a place called Mount Hermon, and we did a lot of what's called family altars, so a lot of family devotions as part of the Christian Reformed Church. But I've never really read the Bible for myself. I don't think, I don't know if I owned a Bible. Maybe I didn't. But it was always a family thing. And at this camp, they gave me what was then a new version of the Bible. I'm 67. So this is like when they were good news for modern man, I think it was called. And they told me to go read it. It was one of the Gospels. I don't know which one. And so I went under the Redwoods, you know, and Mount Hermon is up in the Redwoods. And I sat under this Redwood tree and I opened up the scripture for the first time and I started to read it. And God came to me 
you know, I was reformed, not Pentecostal. So I didn't know that God could like come to me in that catch. Yeah. Nobody really prepared me for that. But I had a very, very strong sense of God encompassing me and that he was 100% love and that he loved me and cared for me. And that was how I came to my own really personal sense of faith. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Beautiful. So and then, uh, then I guess the next thing I would share about the church, and then I'm in high school, I'm involved in lots of things. Then I, I went to college, went to a local college, went to Westmont, became a teacher, taught for three years in migrant, uh, migrant farm worker kids, and then in a place called Farmersville. But then I ended up, the next big part of my journey probably is that I went to Amsterdam. I uh, the, the film Roots had come out and I was really struggling with my roots and everybody was thinking about roots in those days. You know, remember that's when like the whole country was watching the same shows. So like mm -hmm. watching roots and talking about it. And so after three years of teaching, I decided to go back to the Netherlands. I first traveled with a friend and then I said, I want to stay there because both my grandparents, my mom's family stayed there and my dad's dad was there. So I, I went and I was going to try to look for work and, see what happened. I was just kind of searching. So I still believed in God, but I, I'd lost that kind of edge to my faith and so on. So Amsterdam um, has the, had these Christian youth hostels called The Shelter, and I ended up interviewing and getting a job at a youth hostel in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam was fascinating to me because I think growing up in this country, so much of faith seemed very gray, like Christianese, like people did it, especially that, and that's before the years of the nuns, but, you know, N-O-N-E-S, right? I mean, people kind of went to church and <laughs> did that, their thing, and I, it left me wanting. And so what I saw in Amsterdam, and I didn't know I was longing for this till I saw it, I saw people like living, like, you know, following Jesus, like the real deal, you know? Yeah. Like all out. They were all in. I mean, you know, people were just like all in for Jesus. And that was like what I'd been looking for. You know, the living like the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I ended up spending a year at the youth hostel and then moving to a place called the Ark. And there were four to 40 of us in two houseboats behind the central station living in community. And we said a lot, talked a lot about as iron sharpens iron. That was the discipleship. You know, you were, I had three two roommates and there were rooms of five. Like we were all there together. And that's where I was really discipled in much deeper ways in terms of my faith. And what, um, it was the ARC was part of YWAM, Youth of the Mission. They've yeah. been very active in Amsterdam. And I look back on that now and I would say that's when I, God really called me to give my entire life in service to him, whatever, you know, the second calling, some people would call it, or where I really understood, started to think about my vocation. And I think the other thing that is, that's interesting to me now that I've kind of gone on this whole spiritual formation journey is how many things God brought to me in that year that I didn't know the name for, but that I look back on it now and I was like, oh, those were breath prayers. You know, mm -hmm. now they have a name. But at the time, mm -hmm. I was in Psalm 139 and I really sensed a prompting from God to just focus on one sentence and just pray. Mm -hmm. And I prayed it for weeks. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxious thoughts. And that that verse, and I just repeated and repeated until it like sunk deep into my heart. And I would take a and and part of Psalm eighty four. I'd take a piece of scripture, and I would just marinate in it until it like really just became a part of me. And now I realize that those are spiritual practices. But uh, at that time, God 
So God just led me into them because God is God and he doesn't need us to read books on scripture practices. <laughs> we really, He's been doing this for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. But also uh, in, on, in this community, that we actually had a lot of rhythm. So we would get up. We actually had a set kind of quiet stillness hour, quiet hour where we had time with God. And, and we had worship time. I learned about worship you know, for the worship movement. I learned of what it meant about to really praise God. And there were so many things that were built into my life in those couple of years in Amsterdam. And then there were also the Dilram also had houses in Asia, in Delhi, Goa, Kathmandu. And so I decided I wanted, I really sensed that was my next step. So I was supposed to originally go to Goa, but they needed people in Kathmandu. So I spent two and a half years in Kathmandu, Nepal after that. And that, of course, was very formative in terms of my understanding of wealth and poverty and what does Jesus say about the poor and this mm. and all those kinds of things were were already a part of me, but living in a such a different culture, I just uh, raised a lot of questions. I have kind of stories from there if you, we have time for them later on. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I'd love to hear them. <laughs> sure, I'll share one. All right. One that has really stuck with me. Hmm. So I was going to leave, and I wanted gifts. And they had these great little uh, oil lamps. I don't have one here. Everything's in my office. Before. These, they're, they're brass, handmade little brass oil lamps. And, you know, to me, they were like great little souvenirs, right? And mm. I thought they were like the 10 rupees, so like a dollar. And they were handmade. And they were like super cool, right? And as I was getting ready to buy a few of them, this family comes in. I can tell them from the mountains, you know, it's all rugged in Nepal, right? So this whole family comes down and they look at it and they put it down and they hear them talk and they look at it and they, they put it back down. And suddenly I realize they they need this lamp just one but they don't really know if they have enough money for it and mm-hmm. here i am taking three or four home as souvenirs back home to the united states and i was like wow it's just the disparity of life on this mm-hmm. earth and now we would call it my privilege became really aware uh, obvious to me in that moment and mm-hmm. it's, it's been part it's a story that really formed me well, yeah, you know, that's very interesting that you bring up that story, because at some point you find yourself in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and a part of interchange. I, I don't from our conversations past, I don't know that it was called interchange when you started, mm-hmm. but at, at some point that yeah. became the name of it. So can you share a little bit about that, that 30 years in, in downtown L.A.? Well, after Nepal, so I was spent five years overseas and I came home trying to decide what to do with my life. I'm like 30, 31, you know, somewhere in there at this point. And I'd had all this life overseas and I loved the cross-cultural living, I realized, and, you know, that whole world. And people came home, I came home and people said, oh, you were, you're a missionary. And I was like, I don't think so. I had never thought, (laughs) I just stumbled, you know, I think Mm -hmm. I through the back door. So I kind of stumbled into mission. I guess. (laughs) But uh, I was just taking the next faithful step that God had for me, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> after Nepal, I was trying to figure it out. I was sub- subbing um, in San Joaquin Valley, living at home with my parents. And I, I somewhere saw a flyer for Fuller Seminary in their, what was in the School of World Mission on folk religion and theology of mission. And they, they had these courses. And I had all these questions for my time overseas. And I read the descriptions and I was like, 
oh, they're talking about like the things that I'm really wondering about. So I thought, well, let me go do a couple. I did a couple summer intensives and I really loved it. And so I I went back, I came home and did some teaching and then moved to Pasadena. So that's how I ended up in Southern California. And then mm-hmm. I did an MA in, in mission, um, missiology actually, now it's called cross-cultural studies degree, but um, or intercultural studies. So I was in Southern California and I was getting ready to go back to Asia. I was totally prepared to go. To, and I, I also mm-hmm. read some books about urban and all the, all the issues related to the cities of the world. I'd done urban sociology with Westmont up in San Francisco program. So I had gotten a real heart for urban there and thought it would be, I was looking at Philippines. I was looking at different places, but I didn't have a team yeah. to go and I didn't want to go by myself. I, I knew that it wasn't all about just me as this individual, right? So there was a group of people who um, did an internship uh, with servants among the poor, a different a different group with fifth grade. And uh, from that group, five of those people moved into central LA from mostly from Pasadena mm-hmm. to central LA. And I was finishing my degree. So I uh, didn't move the first year, but I knew about these folks living there and I, I visited them. And uh, when I graduated, uh, I had this very strong sense that I was supposed to go there. And now LA yeah. is never of my life. Hmm. I grew up, well, Central California, but we allied ourselves with the North, if you know anything about North and South California. So LA was just never, it was just never, I had no draw to LA at all. But of course, you know, got it, other ideas. <laughs> Well, when you're from when you're from Northern California, LA is like Samaria, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I learned, which everybody learns, when I went into Los Angeles, I um, I went into this neighborhood that was Salvador and Guatemala, and it reminded me of Nepal. You know, street food mm-hmm. on the corners, mangoes on a stick. It's like, oh, this is not what Hollywood told me about. Yeah. Right. So Very true. I have this image of LA, like a lot of people do, but the LA I moved into was not the LA that we see in the movies. Right? Mm. So it's all there. So what happened is that we were part of a, a, a team that lived there, and uh, we ended up. Some things happened. We ended up without really ascending organization. I was doing some t- some work at Fuller. This before I'm on faculty, but I'm doing some TA day TA work, and uh, I knew Bobby and Marilyn Clinton who. Were, Bobby was on the board for CR, what was then CRM. They visited and he said to me, you know, what you're doing is just like what they're doing in Santa Ana, what John, John Hayes is doing in Santa Ana with CRM. You need to go down there and meet up with them because you need to get to know them. So I started going down to Santa Ana where Interchange was. And then the whole LA team over a period, courtship period of a couple of years ended up joining Interchange. So our team started on its own, and then the entire team joined Interchange in '92, and then John came out for an internship in '93. So you yeah. you wind up being in in LA for 30 years. You just recently moved to Pomona, and in that time in Los Angeles, a lot of the spiritual formation practices, which you didn't have names for when you're on the boat <laughs> in Amsterdam, so to speak. You're now in L.A. and you're learning more about the names and the practices. And I just find it, I've had so many conversations with people. I know you have too. It's like, it's easy to pray when it's quiet. And it's easy to pray when you go to the monastery. And it's easy to pray when you get your little fountain in the backyard with your cup of coffee. But when you're in the middle of that 24-7 
kind of urban. It's loud all the time. Like I worked right there on six and Alvarado. Like I know exactly where, yeah, exactly where you are. <laughs> MacArthur Park. Like I, I, I get it. It's just loud, but here you are in this, in this loud, busy season. And this is kind of where God perfected the idea of, of spiritual practices in your life. Yeah. Could you tell us just a little bit more about kind of that journey? Well, yes. Yeah. So I moved into LA. Uh, Kristen, sorry, I cut you off a couple yeah. times. But... Oh, no, no, no. It's totally fine. I am really enjoying your story. <laughs> I I feel like um, you've lived the life that I dreamed of living when I was, <laughs> when I was a teenager because I loved mission. I loved traveling. I loved, I loved being with the poor. I told my mom I was going to open an orphanage. That was my mission in life. So um, I'm just enjoying your story. Please continue. <laughs> well, we moved in. I moved in. I joined this team. Uh, we did a lot of joint prayer together. Later on, when we joined Interchange, we ended up with the three circles. So make sure let, we should get back to that before. Let me mm-hmm. tell you my, my story at the beginning. So I, um, I had a bit of a faith crisis. Well, no, I had a big faith crisis, not a bit. Because I used to, um, I encountered God in the redwood trees of Mount Hermon. And then I lived in the country. And so I would go running around the orchard. Like when I needed to decompress, when I needed to pray, I'd go out and I'd run around the orchard. Like I was the only person out there. It was me and the cows, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then I, I, my job was feeding calves. I used to like love to feed the calves. And so there, it's a really rural life, right? Mm. And I move into this neighborhood, which is the densest neighborhood outside of Manhattan. And suddenly all the ways I had the prompts and the ways I prayed weren't working for me. Yeah. So I, uh, I was like, I know God is everywhere, but in, in my theology, in my head kind of thing, not that I can really separate them, but, but in my embodiment and how I understood my spirituality, you could say my lived practice, I somehow, I was, there was this like huge disconnect with the faith I'd grown up with. And then all of a sudden I was popped in this city. Yeah. And I said, I need some help. So I would, I talked to a number of different people and they're like, uh, nobody can help me because, you know, nobody else lived in my context and nobody was writing about any of this at that time. And all the spirituality literature is devoid of context. It's kind of me and God, and it kind of, I realize now, it assumes kind of a middle-class suburban life. It doesn't say that, because when you're from kind of a, a certain kind of culture, it's the air you breathe, but it was very much influenced by a particular context, and it was not urban. And so so I read, read all these great books, and it's like, okay, so well, what does that mean here, right now, for me, not just for me, but for my neighbors? What is all this? You know, if we're going to have these, you know, be able to retreat and have Sabbath and so all those things, what does it mean in this kind of context? So one day I was at Mount St. Mary's and at, it's not far from where we were. And I saw this science spirituality center. And I realized now they, they had spiritual direction classes, but I just felt led to go in there. I just walked in because <laughs> I was a beautiful green spot beautiful building. I walked in and, and, and Sister Thomas said, Can I, may I help you? And I said, uh, I, I think I'm looking for something. And so she started talking to me. <laughs> I think you want a spiritual director. 
And I had never heard that term at that time. You know, it's a fairly new term in our I mean, in the Catholic study is there, right? And I was like, yes, that is what I want. I <laughs> and so she gave me the names of three different people. And the first one was across the street over there. She was an older nun. She was actually um, terminally ill. And she wasn't actually taking new people, but Sister Thomas felt it was a good fit for me. And I went to meet with her and we just like connected. I had this, I'd been YWAM, so I'd learned a lot about what I would call charismatic spirituality. Yeah. I knew less about the contemplative. So actually, Sister Thomas said to me, she goes, do you want charismatic or contemplative direction? I said, well, I'm going to a vineyard and I've been with YWAM, so give me contemplative because I want <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all that, what I realized now was Richard, all Richard Foster streams are men of Ari. I wanted to understand them all. Mm. So Sister Anne was a deep, deep woman of prayer. And, you know, I remember she says, let's pray. And she closed her eyes. The presence of God in that room was so strong, stronger than I'd ever felt it, sensed in any like kind of charismatic, openly loud, louder expression of faith. So I really learned some things there about how God can be present in many, many different traditions for people in many different kind of ways. So I was in um, spiritual direction with Sister Anne, and she's the one that taught me about attentiveness. And so she, she taught me the examine. She didn't call it that. She was at the end of the day, I want you to ask, look back on your day. And I want you to say, um, where has God been present in my day? Where have I found joy in this day? Where's God, where have I not sensed God's presence? So she just gave me questions to ask at the end of the day. And I started to pay attention and realize that God had been really present. I just wasn't used to the ways God was present. And so I didn't see them. So she opened my eyes to really be much more attentive and to see how God was present. She taught me a lot of practices like the Jesus prayer, like when I'm out, out and about saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. And, and that became like a way of prayer walking. So when I would see people and I, people struggling, I would say a prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on, sometimes on me, but also have mercy on them. You know, mm -hmm. finding ways to pray so that when I was out and about, prayer would just become part of my, my rhythms. Also, I was single. Those times, it was a pretty dangerous neighborhood at that time, and no, no parking, so sometimes I had to park. And I also just learned to, um, when I, that's a whole different kind of expression of faith, when I had to walk to my room, to my, my small little apartment, single it was called, I would always just sing worship songs walking down the street. I would just like declare God's presence over me and, and walk, and I remember one time, uh, I was walking in the middle of the street because it's safer than walking by the bushes, right? And it's a little quiet street. And this person struggling with homelessness says, what are you doing? I said, I'm singing. Um, I'm, singing I'm singing worship songs. He goes, you are a wise woman. And so, and then he started singing with the whole way of connecting. And so people, you can do anything in the city because everybody is a little like doing their own, like everybody's you know, <laughs> peculiarness is fine. So yeah, <laughs> I would have these great, conversations with people because they're like are you talking to yourself i said no i'm singing to god <laughs> so i learned to in many different ways bring my life with god into my everyday life so mm -hmm. and there was many i think that was just i was a way i've learned to live over the next years i also learned a lot about spiritual warfare you know i had um we had some pretty, some things happen that, you know, my reform background didn't really prepare me for, but I had been reading, you know, I took classes with 
people at Fuller who helped me understand, but there was also a battle going on. So mm. that, uh, that you, we have to contend for spiritual realities. And so for me, when I, when I think about prayer, there's just many different elements. I, I really appreciate Richard Foster's books on the streams of living water because you know, the holiness is an important stream and there's the charismatic and there's the social justice and the evangelical and the contemplative and whatever. Anyway, he has these streams, right? And I think I've learned to swim in all the, by now, the streams. And he talks about the streams becoming a river. It's not, I, I don't think that just one shape of spirituality would have sustained me. I have learned to drink from many different streams over the years. And I think there's a way that that really strengthens us. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I watched uh, one of your videos on Fuller Studio, which if you're listening, go to Fuller Studio, type in Jude's name, and she's got a couple of videos that are, are, are worth worth their weight in gold. But you talked a little bit about stillness and how really it's, uh, let me see if I can recall how you put it, how, how that's your posture. That's kind of like um, the way in which you're doing life. Um, and I, I got to assume living in an urban context, stillness is... <laughs> It's an art, mm-hmm. uh, a skill. Yeah. How, how do I, I mean, and you kind of brought together stillness and attentiveness, you know, solitude, like how those work together. Could you share a little bit about that? Well, in the spirituality literature, there's a lot about silence and solitude. Well, neither of those are possible where I lived. They're just, you know, there is no silence. And I think we need a spirituality of noise, by the way. Who said it's all about silence? Most of Jesus' life, was walking the dirty, dusty streets of Jerusalem. And then we talk about the few times he went away to pray, and that's beautiful, and I'm all about getting away to pray. But what about in the in, in the midst of life, right? So we have to have this attentiveness in the noise. But the reason yeah. the word stillness for me is because stillness is a biblical word. It says, be still and know that I am God. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So that stillness is a calling, right? We're called to be still. There's no promise that we're in a quiet place when that happens. So the problem with the word solitude and silence, we can get away to that. And I think that's really important to do. But if that's our only paradigm, then we're going to be on the the pendulum. So we're going to go away for solitude and silence, and then we're going to come back and feel overwhelmed again. Then we'll go away for our solitude and silence. So it's like, I did that for a while. It's like, this isn't working. So how do I integrate that? It's sort of like the integration of Mary and Martha, right? So I started to realize that the biblical word was stillness. And also Desmond Tutu has a wonderful book called That God Has a Dream. And there's a chapter on stillness. And he calls his practices, he refers to it as stillness, which, of course, and because it's a biblical word, it also translates more cross-culturally, right? It doesn't come out of one particular tradition. It's, it's a biblical word that can be understood in any culture of the world. And yeah, so I have taken the word stillness. And because it is a posture, I, I can experience and, and practice stillness when I go to St. Andrew's Monastery. But I can also be attentive to what God wants to do in my own heart and the stillness in my own heart in the midst of a very busy, uh, busy context. Um, you know, 24-7 city. We're all in 24-7 context with the Internet. And there used to be the city was the really busy place. But, you know, you can keep yourself busy almost anywhere in the world now with the, with, uh, <laughs> the yeah. technology we have, right? Yes, that's yeah. true. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think you're you're speaking the language of every mom with young kids out there, right? A, a theology of noise. <laughs> Where was that yeah. theology, Kristen? A few I know. Ago. <laughs> well, I think yeah. it's a really interesting point because I've felt that myself in my own journey. We had four kids in four years, and so yeah, <laughs> so yes, stillness and silence was just not in the cars. Like it was just not going to happen for me, and I. I actually struggled with guilt over not getting my, you know, my quote, quiet time with the Lord and, you know, somehow I'm failing. And so I'm very thankful, you know, gradually worked itself out, but just that, how you talk about, I love how you talked about integrating that prayer throughout your day, because you're right. There's many, many times where stillness is just not possible or silence. It's not going to happen. And the Lord is still in that. Yeah. And what does it mean for a soul to be at rest, even in the midst of all of that, right? So one of the things that's been helpful for me is I've thought a lot about Sabbath and what it means to keep Sabbath and, and all the complications of that. And lots of people write about that. But um, there's two words in the scriptures. One is the, the manuha, the Sabbath rest, which is a very important part of a rhythm. But there's also something called soul rest. Uh, so come to me and I will give you rest, right? So that's not Sabbath rest. That's about coming to Jesus. That's a way of encountering. It's that intimacy, encountering Jesus, and the kind of rest we receive in that. So I think it's important to realize that there's more than one kind of rest. Sabbath rest is one of them, and that's what's called soul rest. It's this other rest that comes from, you know, we've experienced that when, when Jesus meets us in the midst of the hardest thing in our life, right? Yeah. Yeah, one of the themes of this season in this first kind of few episodes is kind of the idea we've been running with is that Jesus gives us two invitations, one which you just mentioned, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then there's that, what I call that kind of second invitation or the follow-up invitation, which is to abide in me, right? So come to me, find rest, experience that. But don't leave, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stay, right? And, and, and experience even more. What, what has been your maybe experience in, in that kind of dynamic and experiencing the rest? And, and then what does it mean to abide in him in your understanding? Well, well I love John 15. And mm-hmm. when I, I teach some on the rhythm of life, because the image that's sometimes used for developing a, a rule of life or a rhythm or a way of living that helps us to abide is the trellis. And the trellis is, uh, so I grew up around vineyards. And if you don't have a trellis, you, that's that support, right? Then the, the vines go all over the place. They end up wallowing in the muck and they're not very fruitful and they can't get exposed to the sun and all the ways they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. To, to grow aren't working. And so a lot of us are wallowing around without a trellis, thinking that wanting our inspiration for our faith to carry us through. But sometimes we need a gentle structure. Yeah. And so for me, the thing about abiding, and I just heard a sermon on this not that long ago, really well-known preacher, and he was preaching on this, and he says, we have to abide. And then, um, so my question is, Okay, we all want to abide. We know we want to remain, but how? Nobody talks about how. That's the trellis. That's spiritual practices. That is that trellis, which is 
not a, a like a law, but it's your guide. It's the guide that helps you in the night. So imagine that the, the electricity's out and you need to, to get somewhere. And you know that there's this, this, there's this kind of a railing along the way that you could, that railing's going to help you get, let's say, to wherever it is you need to go. Without that railing, you'd be like wandering around in the dark, right? So the trellis is like this guide. The trellis by itself doesn't hold the life. The trellis is like a gentle structure. And so that trellis is you say to yourself, what are the things, what are what are the ways I want to grow in my life? Uh, what are some practices that can help me get there? So for me, I've been doing this this evening reflection called the examine since for decades. Now it's something John and I do together. So that's one of my practices. I have morning stillness every morning. Then John and I have a prayer book we read together. There's these these anchors, these things that are part of my trellis, my rule of life, that anchor me, uh, yeah. even when things get dark, even when you're walking in the dark. Mm. Yeah, that's... Time yeah. John 15 is because we need that trellis in order to abide. So the, the question with the abiding is, yeah, I want to abide, but how does that happen? And it's by building these things into our lives. Yeah. Mm. I like that it, because especially, well, my personal, you know, like my own personality is I'm a little bit more, I do it because I feel like it or, you know, I'll bake something because I'm inspired. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and yet if we live our spiritual life that way, just like you said, we'll wind up kind of in the muck because you don't always feel inspired. There are, there are days where you're going to need something to lean on. And if you have it built into your life as this is my routine, this is my, like we would say rhythm, but this is just what I do, no matter if I feel like it or not, this is what I do because it helps me stand. You know, when my, um, I said that John and I use a prayer book and it's, it's this book that comes out it, it's got, it uses the lectionary. So it tells you what to read, you know, the, the, the readings for that day. And they always have every day, the life of a saint, someone who has this amazing person that you've never heard of. But I never used to use that until my brother died. Oh. My brother had pancreatic cancer and it was a really hard season of my life. And I couldn't pray. I didn't want to pray. I couldn't pray. I didn't feel inspired to pray. And I thought it would go away in a few weeks, and it didn't. It just went on. And then I went up to the Abbey, and I prayed with the monks. You know, they have the, their rhythms of prayer. And I just sat there. I just went to the all of the, the, the Vespers and all the things that, you know, the, the morning lots, all the, the different prayer times. And all of a sudden, I, I realized, and Desmond Tutu talks about this in his book, too. Sometimes you throw your prayer, your life on the prayers of the saints. So sometimes it's, it's this. We're so individualistic in our American evangelical Christianity that we we think we have to make it happen. And the fact is people all over the world are praying these prayers and they've prayed them for for centuries. And so so I would join in the prayers of the monks and all of a sudden something just changed in my heart. And the next day I hadn't had to have a sense of hearing from God, but I was spent a couple of days just praying with the monks. And the next morning I got from early morning walk and all of a sudden. It, I, it, it was like God was everywhere again, but I couldn't get there on my own. I had to throw myself on the prayers in the fronts. And so that yeah. was like, okay, I need to find a prayer book that even when I don't feel like praying, I sit down in the morning and it's like, okay, there's an opening, there's a Psalm, there's a New Testament reading, there's a story of a saint, there's this petition prayers. 
And it's, so it doesn't depend on how I feel that morning. And so that has been very helpful. And I don't always need the prayer book anymore, but now it's like, it's now part of my rhythm. And during COVID, it was really helpful because like lots of things fell apart. I'm yeah. really glad I have a prayer book. It's like, okay, uh, I'm now going to teach online instead of in prayer. What does this mean? What does this mean? It's like, okay, I got my prayer book. I can do that. I can get up in the morning. I can open my prayer book and I can read my prayer book. <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's fabulous that's one of the things i've enjoyed when we had a chance to work together in one of the is classes there at fuller uh just your teaching on the rule of life and how helpful it is and then you know i had the opportunity to help students kind of walk through developing their rule of life and i've done countless fuller classes and we always get to the rule of life exercise and I always see their eyes just kind of spinning in their head, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if you've had this experience in grading them, but I listen to their rule of life and I'm like, no one person could do this <laughs> in one day. So you're going to Sabbath rest, read all of the gospels, <laughs> you know, you're going to do your prayer, like, it's just not possible. And, and so sometimes it's that other extreme in the rule of life that there are so many things that I want to do that it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. So how, how do you walk people through that? Well, you know, I've written a three-page article that's actually used in the class, and I keep it really, really, really simple. And I just say, just do a few things. So I, real, I encourage people to keep it simple. You can always expand it, but um, it's just, I think it's called uh, something about uh, learning the unforced rhythms of grace. And, and so I, I just kind of walk people through that and say, what, what do you want to grow? And I think there's two parts to the rule of life. One is, what are the ways I've always connected with God? Like, what are the ways? So let's say it's for some people, it's worship, it's music, right? It's like, well, include that in your rule of life because you don't want to completely do all new things because then you're going to miss the connection, right? So mm-hmm. find a couple of things like, like you know that these, these are all been part of who you are and the way you relate to God. But then how do you want to grow? Stretch yourself a little bit. What are some, maybe you've never done morning stillness. Maybe you've never sat still for 10 minutes every morning. And maybe you think that would be like, you feel sense God calling you to that. So that then adding a, a one or two things that stretch you, that move you in a new direction as well as the things that you that have always been a part of who you are. Because of that way we keep growing into new ways of meeting God. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Don't don't throw everything out. Now I wanted to ask you, your journey is been correct me if I'm wrong, right? I'm happy to be wrong on this, but you you you've kind of spent much of your your Christian life, your ministry life outside of what we would consider a local church context. Is, is that safe to say? Yeah, I yeah. I was involved in a local church, but my main missional expression was not the local church. It was in a particular neighborhood, mm-hmm. which is, you know, tens of thousands of people. But yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you look into that local church context and what you've learned in terms of spiritual formation and prayer, where do you see that maybe the local church could grow in its understanding of formation, of, of living in stillness and attentiveness. You know, this isn't the point where we're throwing the local church under the bus, right? It's just, I have an outsider's view and maybe I have a few things to offer, that kind of thing. I do think more churches are doing some of this, you know, over the last 20 years compared to, let's say, when I first moved into L.A., 
this kind of stuff wasn't being talked about. Formational stuff wasn't being talked about much at all. And it's now being talked about much more depending on the church that you're involved in. So I see uh, as a life has become busier and we're farther and farther removed from any kind of natural rhythms like I had growing up on a farm, there is more of a hunger. I also believe that the millennial generation is hungry for some of this. You know, they're hmm. drawn to a lot of these these ancient ancient spiritual practices. I think there's part of it is is tying again to to the history of the church and these these practices that go way back, right? Yeah. So I do see some churches, quite a few churches, actually doing more with this than before, uh, and I think that we have to keep growing in that. One is, I think one of the things is the spiritual formation piece of how does God want to be formed in us, helping our people not just think rightly, but also I I, I think of life as orthodoxy, orthopraxis, and ortho, orthopathos. So thinking rightly, having our heart turned towards God, and then living rightly. So how do we engage people's hearts? And then how do we live out our faith? So, okay, you can have all this great formation, but it's never about me, right? Mm-hmm. Or about the community. Right. Like, how does God want to us to live in mission? And so in Interchange, we use Micah 6.8. So to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. So the formational piece is under the walk humbly with God, which we call the contemplative. But every quarter, we look at one of those three. Uh, so we have a prophetic quarter to do justly, then to love mercy is the missionary or missional. And so that keeps us from being only contemplative or being missional without any contemplative or having, uh, thinking about justice without any of the life with God pieces. So so for us, the Micah 6-8 is like a, a braid that, that threads all of those together. And I think that it would be helpful for a lot of churches as well. It's, it's about our formation, but it's also it's being communities and mission in the world. And what, what does that look like? And what has God called you to? Because our, for our faith always needs to be embodied, right? It's never... Mm-hmm just this thing that exists just for us or just in our heads, but it's about our whole life being called to serve God and to live for God in the midst of whatever context, uh, context he's called you to. For me, I was called to really specific context, but I think the principles are the same wherever God calls you. Yeah. 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 I like that about the right thinking because that's so much, uh, the uh, emphasis, right, in in the local church setting. Just if if you know more somehow by osmosis, <laughs> you'll act rightly, and it just doesn't work that way. But yeah, that's really really good stuff. Krista, did you have any final questions before we kind of wrap things up? No, I mean I think you covered it. I mean we I wish we could have a whole another hour to <laughs> to un- yeah. unpack this, but I love how you expressed the Micah 6, 8 as the common thread that's woven into life. Because I think I I do see that in the local church where a lot of the focus can be on, I'm going to just go to another Bible study. I'm going to learn a little more. And somehow that is equated with holiness or that's equated with living rightly. And yet the Lord has more. He has more for us. Mm -hmm. And it's those three strands that are all woven together. So I loved that image. Yeah, that's beautiful. That and the image of the trellis is just, I mean, that's that's the takeaways. So as we as we go out, l- let me just ask, if someone's listening to this and, and they are inspired by you, 
any insights, uh, b- good books, websites, you know, how might they contact you, places for spiritual direction, just anything you might have to share with people uh, in terms of next steps? Well, one of the, the, the place I am in my journey now and have been for the last few years is how to, there's such a richness in the cultures of the world and the ethnicities of the world and the peoples of the world. And so many, so many of us have been drinking from a stream that looks a lot like us. And so I have been really trying to read African-Americans on spiritual formation and on racial reconciliation and justice and living missionally or um, Asian-American voices or African voices or voices from someplace besides people who look like me. So that's been part of my journey. So the latest book, I just finished a book club on this. And so I will just, to keep it simple, I will recommend The Deeply Formed Life, Five Transformative Values to Root Us in the Ways of Jesus. So Rich, the pastor is from Queens, New York. He's Puerto Rican. He's a millennial and he's an urbanite. Hmm. So he doesn't come from the usual stream that, let's say, where I grew up. And his book is so integrative. He talks about the contemplative, about Sabbath, about race. He talks about sexuality and he talks about missional presence. And he weaves them all together in a way that you almost never find. And so I, since I just finished this book and really valued it, I'll, I'll recommend that one. There's, there's so many books out there. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> there's probably an endless list. Yeah, I have a, on the Fuller Youth Institute website, I have a number of articles there. I have one, the one on, on the rule of life. I have one on, there's one that talks about the examine. There's uh, Sabbath rest in 24-7 cities. So I have some resources there, but there's many others as well. And like I said, I will... I will give you the deeply formed life for today. Fun, fun. Uh, well, Jude, thank you so much again. Yes, we're just, just so blessed to have you. So happy we were able to, to pull this off. And thank you for taking the time. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. Next time, Kristen and I will discuss gospel movements and the role of activating prayer. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check out what we're doing at thelowrysonmission.org or on Facebook at the Lowry's on Mission. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.